A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonith, a mascal of Hermon, or Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard of Billy Graham, probably the greatest evangelist and preacher of the 20th century. But I doubt any of you have heard of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was a close associate and contemporary of Billy Graham in the 1940s. And it was actually Charles Templeton who was billed as the next great American preacher and not Billy Graham. It was Charles Templeton, not Billy Graham, who was given his own television show on a, or CBS called Look Up and Live. I'm sure you have all, the, all of you have that on DVD somewhere in your basement. Um, but Charles Templeton's life was changed uh, in a decisive way when he saw a single photograph. It's a very famous photograph. It appeared some years ago on the cover of Life magazine. And it is a picture of an African mother holding her child who had died. And the child had died because of a lack of rain. And Charles Templeton kept this photo, and the photo greatly disturbed him. And the more he thought about the photo, the more it disturbed him. And over a period of years, uh, it culminated in him not just leaving the Christian ministry, but in leaving the Christian faith entirely. And in his book, Farewell to God, he describes what happened. Templeton wrote... Who runs the rain? I don't, and you don't. God does. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew that it was not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. A loving God could not possibly be the author of the horrors we're describing. It is not possible for an intelligent person 
to believe that there is a deity who loves. We're beginning this morning a new five-week series that we're calling Defeaters. And uh, the purpose of this series is to look at the strongest defeaters of the Christian faith in our city in particular. And we're beginning this morning by thinking about the problem of evil and suffering. And so as we think about this series, I want to give you three reasons why our elders uh, have decided to think about this series together. The first reason we want to talk about these ideas is to honor and lovingly engage those of you who are skeptical about Christianity. Skeptics and doubters are welcome here. Uh, We actually want to be a place where hard questions are asked, and we don't want to shirk those questions. So we want to engage with integrity these very real and substantial issues. That's one reason. A second reason we want to think about this is to build up and disciple those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, to provide you with help, to provide you with help for these questions and engaging your friends and your family with them. And then a third reason that we want to think about these topics is to show you something important, and that's this. God can handle your own doubts. God can handle your doubts and your struggles to believe. Last week, we looked at Matthew 28, and I didn't mention this last week, but in Matthew 28, 17, Matthew tells us that the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus, and he says they believed in him, but some doubted. They believed in him, but some doubted. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that that is the paradox of following Jesus. We believe, but also we need God to help our unbelief. We believe, and yet we also doubt. And so another purpose of this series is to help us understand that we're probably going to experience doubt in life. And that isn't necessarily bad. That can be bad. But periodic doubt is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so we want to talk about those doubts and take those doubts to God. And so that's the purpose for the next five weeks. And as I mentioned this morning, we're looking at the problem of evil and suffering. And in my personal opinion, this is just my opinion, this isn't in the Bible, um, this is the single greatest objection posed against the Christian faith. Uh, It's the defeater that I have personally struggled with the most. It's the one that has caused me personally to doubt the most from time to time in my own life. And if you've not struggled with this question, on an intellectual, and also on an existential level, um, you're going to. You're going to at some point, and the reason is because all of us are going to experience suffering in this life. All of us are going to undergo, to one degree or another, evil. And so what we're going to do is use Psalm 88 as a place to think about this idea, because this psalm actually is an invitation for you and for me to do just that. So let's get into the content here. I'm going to summarize with this main statement, and then we're going to break it up into three parts, and that's your outline. So here's the main statement. The problem of evil is a real problem for believers and non-believers that can only be resolved through the truth of the gospel. The problem of the evil is a real problem for believers and non-believers that can only be resolved through the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to break that into three parts. First, the problem of evil and suffering is a real problem, okay? Sooner or later, every one of us who claim to be Christians will have to deal with this problem, not just intellectually, although that's a significant issue as well, but emotionally, viscerally, experientially. Uh, The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote that the problem of evil is the best argument against God that he knows of. But you know what I find comforting? Um, The Bible itself struggles with this problem. The Bible itself struggles with this problem. That's what Psalm 
88 is about. Tim read for us the beginning of the psalm, which is called the superscription. You might see it there in your Bible. It's sort of a, an introduction to the psalm in the background. And we read there that this psalm was written by a man named Heman, not Herman, <laughs> Heman the Ezraite. And uh, we don't know much about Heman, but we do know that he was the founder of what are known as the Sons of Korah, which was a group of skilled musicians, kind of like the Beatles of ancient Israel. Um, and they authored numerous psalms that we have in our Bible, and undoubtedly they authored many other songs that we don't have preserved for us in the Scripture. So Heman was a singer. Heman was a poet. Heman spent his life singing praises to God. He was a worship leader. And it's Heman who wrote the most depressing psalm in the whole Bible, which is this one, Psalm 88. And interestingly enough, the editor of the Psalms placed this Psalm dead smack in the middle of the Psalter and dead smack in the middle of the Bible. This is a Psalm about darkness. It's a Psalm about suffering. It's a Psalm about wrestling with the reality of pain and evil. Look at it with me for a second. This wasn't just an incidental issue for Heman. It becomes clear as you read the psalm that it's a dominant theme in his life. Verse 1, he says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out, when? Day and night. I cry out day and night before you. That Hebrew word there, cry out, means a protracted wailing. A protracted wailing. Heman begs with the Lord. Verse 2, listen to me. Listen to me, God. Incline your ear to my cry. And then he brings his complaints and his struggles and his doubts and his sufferings to God. Verse 3, my soul is full of troubles. Verse 4, I have no strength left. Verse 6, you, God, you have put me in the depths of the pit in regions dark and deep. Verse 8, I'm all alone. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. Verse 8, I'm shut in. That's as if he's saying, I feel trapped. I know that all of us from time to time feel that way. Verse 15, I'm helpless. I've suffered your terrors. And then how does it close? Verse 16, you, God, have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My only friend is the darkness. Drops the mic (laughs) and walks off. Darkness is my only companion. You know, most psalms in the Bible end with some modicum of trust or some sunny side. But not Psalm 88. Not Psalm 88. It begins and it ends in the darkness. Now listen, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. We don't sing songs like this in church. I mean, just think about it. Think about, Laura's not here, so I can tell a story about her. This is hypothetical. Imagine Laura came up to me and said, Luke, I want to sing a new song and introduce it to the church. And I said, that sounds great. And then she gets up at the keys and she says, here's a new song I've written for us. It's called Darkness is My Only Friend. <laughs> I'd be like, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. You didn't tell me the title of the song. We just don't sing songs like this. This is a jarring song. It's a jarring song for every culture, but it's particularly a jarring song for cultures that struggle to deal with the reality of evil and suffering. Uh, How can this be in the Bible? How can this be in the Bible? A third of Psalms are laments. 
And this is in the Bible because the Holy Spirit is inviting us to ask just these questions of God. Do you know that? This psalm is in the Bible in part because God is inviting us to wrestle with the problem of why there's so much suffering and evil. And listen, it is a real problem. Here's the problem of evil, classically stated. Let me put it for you like this. Here's how it goes. I don't believe that the God of the Bible exists. Here's why. This world has terrible suffering and evil. That's just something that we all assume. This world has terrible suffering and evil. So either God is all-powerful, but not good enough to end evil, or God is all-good, but not powerful enough to end evil. Either way, the all-powerful, all-good God of the Bible probably does not exist. That's the problem. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in The Problem of Pain that human suffering causes intolerable intellectual problems. Human suffering causes intolerable intellectual problems. And I was just thinking about this this, this week. It wasn't a good week for me, by the way. Thank you for asking. Uh, thinking about the problem of pain and suffering all week. And I, I was researching about this, and I read a New York, New York Times article on war. And uh, this article about war said that in the past 3,400 years, basically in recorded human history, 3,400 years, humans have been at what they call relative peace for 268 of those years, which amounts to about 8% of human history. And I think that's probably being generous, okay? Um, In the 20th century alone, war and genocide killed 108 million people. So there's war. And then there are diseases, The World Health Organization estimates that up to a third of the world currently has some form of tuberculosis and that it kills between 60 and 90 million people a year. But the greatest killer is malaria. Malaria. Rosemary Drisdell, who wrote a book called Parasites, Tales of Humanity's Most Unwelcome Guests. What a great book that must be. Parasites, Tales of Humanity's Most Unwelcome Guests. She crunches the numbers in this book and she guesses that malaria has potentially killed upwards of 40 billion people throughout history, which is basically, you could say that's almost a third of every person who's ever lived. And um, we could go on and on about natural disasters, birth defects, animal pain and death. And then just personal, emotional suffering, etc., etc., etc. The problem of evil and suffering is a real problem if the God of the Bible exists. How can a God who is good and how could a God who is omnipotent allow a world like the world we live in now? Christians have been keenly aware of this problem for centuries. Um, and there have been many proposed solutions to the problem of evil. Bear with me for just a second because I think it's important to talk about those for a second. Why a good and all-powerful God would allow evil and suffering. These are called theodicies. Theodicy is a a word that comes from the Greek word for God and the Greek word for justify. So it's a justification or a vindication of God, a theodicy. One theodicy that's always been very popular is that evil is a result of your sin. In other words, the reason bad things happen to you, the reason you suffer, the reason you experience evil is because you did something really bad. That's what the book of Job was written to counter by the way. Uh, That's a really bad theodicy. And one of the reasons it's a really bad theodicy is because the vast majority of suffering seems to be entirely random and arbitrary. And also, the argument just doesn't happen to comfort anyone who's struggling with it. Another very well-known theodicy is 
that evil exists because God gave free will to men. This is known as the free will defense. C.S. Lewis made this argument following a long line of many other very, very smart people. And basically, this argument says that the reason there's so much evil in the world and the reason there's so much suffering in the world is because God, if he wanted to create humans who would have the freedom to love him, had to risk the possibility of evil. Does that make sense? God wanted us to freely choose him and to love him for who he is. And therefore, there's a possibility that we would freely not choose him and therefore cause the world to be evil and full of suffering. I don't think that solution works either, actually, for a lot of reasons. One, sometimes I wonder, is that risk worth it? I mean, honestly, sometimes I would rather be a robot who can't but love God than be free in this world. But a much more significant problem to that defense is the idea that is it really impossible for God to allow us to both be free and to prevent evil? And I would say, actually, no, that's not impossible because that's exactly what heaven's going to be. In heaven, we're going to be free. We're going to freely choose to love God. And at the same time, there will be no evil, nor will there be a possibility of evil. So why isn't that the case now? Why didn't God create the world like that in the first place? Those theodicies don't work. But most importantly, theodicies don't work because they don't comfort you when you're experiencing evil and suffering which we all will. When you've been abused, or when you've lost a loved one too early, or when you've had a relative hauled away to the gas chambers at Auschwitz, the free will defense just doesn't seem to add up. The answer that all of this is for some greater good just doesn't work. It doesn't assuage the deep pain that all suffering and evil bring. So here's the point. This is a real problem. We need to admit that just like Psalm 88 does. Sometimes it feels like darkness is our only companion, and we have no answers, and we have no reasons why. The problem of evil and suffering is a real problem. Secondly, it's a real problem for believers and non-believers. It's a real problem for believers and non-believers. Now, this is a real problem for Christians. Christians need to just admit that. I will grant you that at the outset. But it's a bigger problem. It's a bigger problem if you reject the God of the Bible. Let me show you why. I think this is an important point for you to understand because here's how the argument about the problem of evil usually goes. Because there's so much evil and suffering, we should abandon any faith in the God of the Bible. Either he for sure doesn't exist or a slightly humbler agnostic approach would say he probably doesn't exist. But even if God does exist, he definitely can't be trusted. He definitely can't be trusted because this is the world that you Christians claim he's made. Now, again, that's a real concern. It's a real issue. But it's not just a problem for those who believe in and trust the Christian God. It's a bigger problem for those who have abandoned trust in the Christian God. How is that the case? Well, the key presupposition, try and stay with me here if you can. The the key presupposition of the problem is that we're all horrified at injustice, right? None of us like suffering and evil. We all look at suffering and evil and we say, that's wrong. That should not be. The problem of evil screams out, this should not exist. Things should not be this way. And all of us would agree with that. But that begs a question. It begs a deeper question. Why? 
Why should these things not be? Why are we all horrified by evil if this world is all that there is? Listen, the very fact that you struggle with evil, suffering, and injustice presupposes that you have a moral framework by which to judge and assess reality. It presupposes that you have some sense of what is right and some sense of what is wrong. So you have to, you have to ask a further question when you're struggling with the problem of evil. And that question is this, from where do I get my categories of good and evil in the first place? You see, the very objection to evil is based on a sense of how things ought to be. Listen to a, a lady named Andrea Dilly, who's written a, a book that I really enjoyed called Faith and Other Flat Tires. She grew up as a child of missionaries in Africa, in Kenya, and left the faith for some time and then came back to the church later in her life. And she writes this book as a bit of an autobiography. Listen to what she says. When people ask me what drove me out of the doors of the church... And then what brought me back, my answer to both questions is the same. I left the church in part because I was mad at God about human suffering and injustice, the problem of evil, right? And I came back to church because of that same struggle. I realized that I couldn't even talk about justice without standing inside of a theistic framework, a world in which God exists. In a naturalistic worldview... A parentless orphan in the slums of Nairobi can only be explained in terms of survival of the fittest. We're all just animals slumming it in a godless world, fighting for space and resources. The idea of justice doesn't really mean anything. To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. What's the point? The point is, even if you discard the God of the Bible... Even if you discard the God of the Bible, you still have a problem of evil. That doesn't get rid of suffering. And in fact, it makes the problem much more significant. And here's why. If this world is all there is, if survival of the fittest is the way of this world, then it makes total sense that there's evil. What doesn't make any sense is that we're offended by it. Richard Dawkins, who I actually deeply appreciate as a neo-atheist, for his desire to be as fully consistent as possible. Richard Dawkins working out the consistent implications of a worldview that is based on random chance and not on God's design wrote this in The God Delusion. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What a fun guy to hang out with he must be. What's the problem with that view? The problem with that view is that it is completely unlivable. You might claim to believe that you don't live that. You might claim to believe these things, but you can't possibly live that way. How do I know that? Because you care about these things. Because you're offended at the evil in the world. You have some moral framework. You really don't want the weak to be slaughtered by the strong. 
especially if you're weak. As the philosopher Luke Ferry says, this view is too brutal to be honest. It's too brutal to be honest. And so abandoning God does not make the problem of suffering and evil easier to handle. Abandoning the God of the Bible actually forces you to ask a prior question, which is, why am I offended at the problem of evil and suffering at all? Why is this a problem? Based on my own worldview, that there is no God, that everything is just survival of the fittest, that it's dog-eat-dog and strong prey on the weak, this is exactly what I should expect. But none of us really deep down believe that because we don't want to be preyed on. We don't want to be mercilessly killed. We don't like it when we see pictures like Charles Templeton saw. We don't like seeing a picture of a young African boy dead in his mother's arms. We can't really with integrity say that this is just the way things are. Get over it and be stronger. Those who do try to consistently say that, let me just say this very bluntly, end up killing themselves. They end up killing themselves. The problem of evil and suffering is a real problem for believers and for non-believers. Lastly, that can only be resolved through the truth of the gospel. You know, one of the frustrating things about this problem is that the Bible does not answer the why question. It doesn't. The Bible sidesteps the why is there so much evil in the world question. Why does God allow this? Here's the answer. We don't know. That's the honest truth. We cannot understand it. Again, that's the whole point of Job. Job asks God to justify himself. Job asks God for his own theodicy. And God basically says, Job, I'm God and you're not. Listen to Job 40. Here's what God says to Job. And imagine God saying this to you after you've been whining for 40 chapters to him. Here's what God says. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong, Job? Will you, Job, condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? What's the point? Here's the point. If you have a God great enough to be angry at, then you also have a God great enough that you can't fully understand why he does what he does. If you have a God great enough to be mad at, You have a God great enough to have reasons you can't understand. Just because we can't understand the reason God allows suffering and evil does not therefore mean that God doesn't have a good reason. But guess what? That isn't comforting. That doesn't satisfy. That's why Job leaves us in a bit of a tension. We might agree intellectually, and even theologically, that God has reasons that we don't understand and that we won't ever understand, but that doesn't really help us to love this God. It doesn't really help us to trust him, and really that's the issue, right? God is above us, yes, but is God worthy of our affection? Is God worthy of our adoration? How can we get to that point in a world full of suffering? The answer is only through the truth of the gospel. That's the only way. And let me try to explain it as we close up. We can't understand why there is evil, but we can understand. Listen, we can understand that God, too, has experienced the problem of evil. And that, in my opinion, makes Christianity unique. It makes Christianity unique among all religions of the world and among all world philosophies. Because every religion and every philosophy attempts to answer how we deal with evil and suffering. 
But only Christianity says that evil and suffering are a problem for God too. Something he himself experienced. They're a problem so great that God himself suffered. And God himself underwent evil, even to the point of death. You know, Heman in Psalm 88 says to God, I am in the regions dark and deep. But you know who really ultimately sings that song to God? Jesus. Do you know that? Heman felt like he was in regions dark and deep. Jesus went to regions dark and deep. Jesus was buried six feet underground. The most unjust, evil suffering to ever take place in the history of this planet took place on the head of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows what it's like to sing Psalm 88. Heman says, O Lord, why do you hide your face from me? Your wrath has swept over me. Jesus sings that song, understanding the fullness of suffering and evil in a way that we can only begin to grasp because that is what fully happened to him on the cross. The wrath of God swept over him. The Lord hid his face from Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God himself, God himself suffers to ultimately end suffering. God himself undergoes evil, great evil, to one day rid the world of evil forever. Why is there evil and suffering? We don't know fully, but what we do know is that God cares about the problem so much that he undergoes it himself to end it. Have you lost a loved one? Have you lost a loved one? Have you lost a baby? God has suffered in that way. God gave up his only beloved son. Have you ever felt abandoned and afflicted? Jesus knows what that is like. In some ways, the most powerful verse in the Bible is when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Have you been victimized? Have you been abused? Jesus understands. What is the cross if not a divine lynching? Jesus is lynched. He's beaten. He's bullied. He's accosted. We can't logically explain the problem of evil, but we can go to a God who's experienced it himself. And we can know that he sympathizes in it with us. The gospel is that God loves us so much that he went through evil and suffering so that he can take us away from evil and suffering forever. Peter Kreeft uh, Peter Kreef says that the cross doesn't actually get God off the hook. The cross is God on the hook. The cross is God on the hook. The cross is God taking suffering and evil, all the suffering and evil of this world, upon his own head, upon his own shoulders, and bearing it away out of love. Out of love for you and for me. The death of Jesus is the only way forward, and the resurrection of Jesus is the only way forward. If Easter means anything, if Easter means anything, it means that Jesus, along with his death, in his resurrection, helps us to actually trust God in a world of suffering and evil. Because the resurrection says, the resurrection says that we will get all that we have lost in this world back. We will get all that we have lost in this world back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, we will get it back in the new world. 
in an unimaginable world with unimaginable degrees of glory and strength. So Dawkins, Dawkins, as much as I respect him, and those who reject God are wrong. They're wrong when they say that this world is all there is. And we all know deep down that they're wrong because we don't want, we scream and rage against the dying of the light that this world is all there is. There's no hope in that. There's only death there. There's only darkness there. No, the truth is there's more. There's much more. A new world awaits us where there's no suffering, where there's no evil, because Jesus has pushed it back. He's defeated it forever in his death and in his resurrection. Why is there pain in the world? Why do you suffer? Why is there so much arbitrary and random evil? Friends, as Christian believers, we can't answer those questions. We can't answer them, but we can point those who ask to the fact that God cares about that question so much that he underwent the fullness of evil and suffering and one day will end evil and suffering. No one has ever put this better, I don't think, in literature than Fyodor Dostoevsky, the author of uh, The Brothers Karamazov. At one point in this book, uh, he writes this, and I'm going to close with this. I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the infinite and of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Let's pray.